Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. podcast. Today's episode features Andy Snoke. I want to speak tonight on a, a subject, if I were to give it a title, the title would be Perseverance. This is something that's, it seems like in my heart in a way the Lord has been highlighting a need to persevere. Persevere in the things that God has revealed and, and given us. And I guess we should start by explaining what perseverance means. What does it mean? Well, a young pastor was sitting in a restaurant eating lunch, and he opened up a letter he just received that morning from his mom. As he opened up, a $20 bill fell out, and he thought to himself, Thanks, Mom, I sure needed that right now. As he finished his meal, he noticed a, a beggar outside on the sidewalk leaning against the light post. Thinking that the poor man could probably use the $20 more than he, he crossed out the names on the envelope and he wrote across the top in large letters, Persevere, Persevere. So as not to make a scene, he put the envelope under his arm and he dropped it as he walked past the man. The man picked it up and read the message and smiled. The next day as the pastor enjoyed his meal, the same man tapped him on the shoulder and handed him a big wad of bills. Surprised, the young pastor asked him what that was for. The man replied, this is your half of the winnings. Persevere came in first in the fourth race at the track yesterday and paid 30 to 1. Well, that's not the persevere that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a different perseverance. Perseverance, just the definition is, is awesome. The definition of perseverance is steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Think of that. Steadfastness in doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving success. Perseverance. And that's what God has asked us to do. He hasn't called us to a 100-yard dash. He's called us to a marathon. Persevere. Anybody can run a 100-yard dash. It may not be very fast, but anybody can run a 100-yard dash. But not many people can run a marathon. And God has called us to run a marathon. C.S. Lewis said that God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road... Progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back the soonest is the most progressive. What saves a man is to take a step and then another step. And that's how we walk with the Lord. We take one step and then we take another step and then we take another step. Emotion and feelings has nothing to do do with it. It's all faithfulness. By perseverance... The snail reached the ark. If you're trying to run a 26-mile marathon, that was Charles Spurgeon that said that, remember that every mile is run one step at a time. If you're writing a book, do it one page at a time. If you're trying to master a new language, try it one word at a time. Persevere. 
Becoming like Christ is a long, slow process of growth. Rick Warren. Our motto must continue to be perseverance, and ultimately I trust the Almighty will crown our efforts with success. I'm going to talk to you about a few examples of perseverance. I'm going to, I'm going to cover a lot of territory. I'm going to cover a lot of scriptures. If you want these scriptures, number one, they're, they're on live stream, they're taped. If you want a copy of my paper notes, which is just the scriptures, give me your email and I'll just email them to you. You, you probably won't be able to write all of these down. But the Bible gives us lots of examples of perseverance. Job. The story of Job is a very familiar one that vividly demonstrates to us how a believer can persevere in the face of extreme hardship and still keep his faith and integrity intact. Every one of these scriptures you could talk all night, night about. My brethren, it says in James 5.10, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord and that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Perseverance, sticking it out, hanging in there. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah's life, he was, he was threatened. Jeremiah, the 37th chapter. He was cast into a dungeon where he sank into the mire. Jeremiah, the 38th chapter, first six verses. Jeremiah was put into stocks. Jeremiah 20, verse 1. His people resisted him and sought his life. Jeremiah 11, the 11th chapter, 21st verse. Some prophets at that time, false prophets, lied, a false vision, divination, worthless things, and deceived the heart, it says in Jeremiah 14, 14. But when Jeremiah prophesied the word of God, all the people and the priests and the false prophets, they wanted to kill him. He was persevering, though. He persevered. He didn't give up. He had no encouragement from the people around him, but he persevered. That's the thing about perseverance. Perseverance is easy when you have everybody around you patting you on the back and saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. It's a little harder when everyone isn't behind you, as with Jeremiah. There's a parable that's known as a parable of perseverance that Jesus spoke about in Luke, the 18th chapter. And he talked about, he spoke this parable unto the sin that the men ought always to pray and not to faint. Saying there was a city, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city that came unto him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not do it for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. It's a parable of persistence. This widow went to the judge. He wasn't a godly man, and she kept petitioning him for justice. Finally, he gave in. That's an example to us. That's an example that God has given us to keep, keep storming the, the throne of God with your needs and your petitions, to persevere. The Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is a great inspiration. The life of Paul defines what perseverance is all about. Here, here is how he described it using the experiences his own missionary team went through 
in the course of advancing the gospel, Paul wrote this. He said, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest on our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. He talks about his experiences. Paul Paul was the kind of guy that you wouldn't want to travel with. Well, I'll read it here. It says, Paul wrote, writes further, he says, uh, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And labor is more abundant. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, and deaths more often. Of the Jews, five times I received forty stripes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A day and night I have been in the deep, just floating. And journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, and the perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that's what's cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed for everyone, knoweth that I lie not. And Damascus, the governor of the city, kept the city of, of the, uh, Damascus with a garrison, desired to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. You know, the poor apostle Paul, if he got in a ship to go somewhere to serve the Lord, the ship would sink. If he would try to warm his hands up around a fire, a snake would jump out and bite him. He would be beaten, left for dead. All hor- types of horrible things would happen to him. But he persevered. He persevered. He didn't always have people patting him on the back. It wasn't always easy for him to persevere. But he did. The Apostle Paul wrote First Timothy. Then he wrote the book of Titus, and then the Lord showed him, Paul, you're not going to survive. You're going to die. You're going to be beheaded. And then he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. There goes 1 Timothy, Titus, then 2 Timothy chronologically. When he wrote 2 Timothy, you might think at that point he might he could have wrote, you know, Lord, I give up. It just seems like everything I do is turning out bad. I'm not having your traveling mercies. I'm having such great difficulties. Now I'm in prison. Who's going to hear me in prison? And now I'm about to be beheaded. He didn't say that though. You know what he said? So in the last words that he wrote in his life, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I think of that word when you think of going to an airport and you stand ready for your departure and you watch the time coming up and you're going to someplace wonderful and as the departure time gets closer, you get kind of excited about the departure. Unless you're flying United Airlines and it's not, <laughs> and it's not so much fun. I shouldn't say this, but I heard that United is now offering red eye flights and black eye flights as well. But, 
He was looking forward to his departure. And he said, for I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And then, I like this, I have fought a good fight. He said, he, he, he did it. I fought a fight. Fights aren't easy. I fought a good fight, he says. He looked over his life. He recognized, I stuck with it. I could have been unfaithful. I could have just quit. I stuck with it. And there's almost a ring of godly pride, if that's such a word. I fought a good fight, he says. I'm at the end of my life, and I I got here. I did it. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. He persevered. At the end of his life, instead of looking at a Roman sword that's about to behead him, he says, he says, yes, I did it. I got here, and I kept the faith, and I didn't quit. In spite of all the difficulties within and without, I didn't quit. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but also unto those, to those also that love his appearing. He stuck it out. Perseverance. Perseverance, again, the definition, steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. You go to church, we may not be, we are not where we want to be. As Brother Sumble shared the other night, last night, we pray out, how much longer, Lord, how much longer? We're not where we want to be. Steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty, difficulty or delay in achieving success. Perseverance. Hanging in there. Hebrews 2 says, the first verse, second chapter, first verse, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. I think that is ringing, it's ringing in my ears today. Andy, pay attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. The things you have heard all your life. We must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, Lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast in every transgression and disobedience receive the just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Perseverance. Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hang in there. Don't waver. For he who promised is faithful. You may fail. You and I will fail from time to time. But he who promised is faithful. Brother Sumble talked a little bit about that last night. Holding on to that confession. We say, how long, Lord? But as far as God is concerned, it's over with. It's done. It's a done deal. Because he who promised is faithful. This next verse is good. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So let's stop at that. Stop there for a minute. He says, let us consider one another. Think about one another. Think about one another. Consider one another. How to stir up for love and good works. How to stir them up. Look at your brother and your sister and those in your congregation and say, Lord, how can I stir up my brother or my sister? There's little things you can do. Someone gets up and gives a testimony. Tell them, I really appreciated that. Someone sings a song and say, I really appreciated that. A little one gives their scripture verse. You tell them, we're so happy you gave that verse. Find ways to stir up one another, to love and good works, to love and good works. Now, this, then there's a comma. 
Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is a matter of some. You need to be in church. We need to be in church every week and more. We need to be at least one camp during the year. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It doesn't matter if our feelings are hurt or things aren't going this way or that way. As we said before, it's not about you, it's about God. And it's about serving Him. I, you know, I, I've shared this before, but church is not like Burger King. It isn't have it your way. It's not have it however you want it. It's about Him. It's not about us at all. It's all about Him. I'm going to gather every Sunday morning. It doesn't matter if my feelings are hurt or, or this or that, or I don't like what someone says or the way they look or the way they sing. I'm there for God and I'm going to be there every Sunday. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's a marathon race. Perseverance. Perseverance. Let us not become weary, Galatians 6-9, in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's important. Don't become weary in doing good, comma, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. There is a harvest. There are rewards for faithfulness. You will not see them right away, but they will come. They will come. If we do not give up, perseverance, steadfastness, and doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6 says this, good verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's pretty important. You cannot please God without faith. You have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Then listen to this. For he who comes to God, this is really good, must believe that He is, you believe He's God, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God is in the rewarding business. You know, I, I got a credit card and to get reward miles and reward benefits and by using your credit card. Well, God's in the rewarding business. He doesn't reward credit cards, but he rewards faithfulness. If you walk with God faithfully, I can promise you by the word of God, he will reward you. Those of you, all of you, that were faithful and, and fought the Saskatchewan weather, the, the, the weather that's outdoors and came to camp, I can promise you because of your faithfulness, God will bless you. I can promise you, you will be rewarded. You're already rewarded. You're, you persevered. You were diligent. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Perseverance. Matthew 13, 23. But he who receive, receives seed in the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. He who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And that tells me that there are different degrees of our faithfulness. There are different degrees of how you react to the seed of God. It produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But it all produced. I don't know about you, but I want to produce a hundredfold. I want my crop to produce. I'm happy with anything that it produces. But let our faith be in such a way that it produces a hundredfold. It's up to you. Matthew seven thirteen. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. He talks about entering by the narrow gate, and that, once again, it speaks to me of perseverance. It speaks to me of something that just takes effort. You don't, you don't just walk with God just easily and there's no effort. The gate is wide that leads to destruction. It doesn't take much effort to go there. This narrow gate, it takes a little more work. Perseverance. The broad gate, the wide gate that leads to destruction, you don't have to persevere. It's an easy one. The narrow gate, it takes some work. Persevere. Persevere. Steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving excess. Matthew, the 7th chapter, 24th verse, is an interesting parable. He gives a parable here, and he repeats it twice, and he only changes like two words. He talks about, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, three words, and does them. I will liken him to a wise man that built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, doesn't persevere, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The only difference was both parties heard the word of God. One did them and one didn't. The only difference. One persevered. Coming to camp, coming to church, as wonderful as it is, still doesn't matter unless you practice what you hear. You put into practice the things that we hear. Revelation, the second chapter, the church in Ephesus, he, he gives a warning. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Lamp I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles or are not. You found them liars. You And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Persevere and stay in love with me, he says. Remember there from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Perseverance. Perseverance. I'm going to read this next parable to you real quickly. Everyone knows that you have it memorized, the prodigal son. But there's a key point in here that, that I've been missing for years. We, we, we've been highlighting not the wrong thing, but there's, there's, a, there's something that we don't highlight. I'll read it quickly. The parable, the, par, par, the parable of the prodigal, Luke 15. Prodigal means wasteful. The prodigal son was the wasteful son. Then he said a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. You know, I, I pray every day that we're not living spiritually in a wasteful way. That we're not living like the prodigal in a wasteful way, wasting what God has given us. So, so he divided them into the livelihood, and then many days later, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. But when he had spent all, there rose a severe family in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of the father, my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? I will rise, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry, began to make merry. Now we all know that story. And we use that story a lot when we talk about the prodigal, how anybody can come back home. And that's true. You walk away from the Lord, the, the door is open, you can come back anytime. And that's where we always put the emphasis. But here's, there's something very subtle here, and yet profound. And now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he was, he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, These many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. We quite often quote that and we say, well, what happened to the good son? You know, he's he was the prodigal son after all. He's got a bad attitude. But I think there's something we're missing Because the next thing the father says this, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now here's here's what I got out of that. Here's one son that persevered. He may may not have been happy all the time. He was jealous with his brother. But he persevered and he was faithful. He even had a lousy attitude. He was jealous. But his father just told him, son, all that I have is yours. He didn't say that to the prodigal son. He said, son, you've been out and you wasted all that I gave you and I welcome you back home. But faithful son, all that I have is yours. It speaks to me there still was a greater reward for perseverance, even with a lousy attitude. He was rewarded. Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. I I dare, I, I, I can't even begin to think of God saying that to his people. Sons and daughters, you've always been with me, and all that I have is yours. That's kind of a phenomenal thought. Faithfulness, persevering, he welcomes him back. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Then he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each man's work of what sort it is. God will test your work. He will test your work. Are you persevering? Are you persevering? If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. See, the prodigal son was saved as through fire. He lost it. He was brought back to the father's home, but there were many things that he didn't get. James 1, 2 said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, persevering, put into practice what God has given you. James 5, 7 and 8, it says, therefore be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it, re- until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. I cover this first section very rapidly. And like I said, if you want these notes, just give me your email address. And I thought as I wrote this about persevering, persevering, hanging in there, walking faithfully. Well, what are, what are some of the things that God has revealed? There's many things that he has. What are some of the truths that we could rehearse? That we need to walk in, that we need to persevere in. There are many things. And I just jotted down a few of them here, and there are there's no particular order to these, and I certainly didn't jot down any of them. A little later I'm going to get into my some of my favorite subjects, but he, but one of them is one of the things that we persevere in, and I mentioned it already, going to church. Attending church weekly, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Sunday should be different than the rest of the days. Sunday should be a day that we kind of push some things aside and our busy schedule so that we can go and worship God. We should worship God once, at least once a week, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Camp attendance, I mentioned that briefly earlier. The Bible, this is a whole message in itself, the Bible seems to teach that the church camp scenario will some be someday established in the kingdom of God. It says in Micah 4, Now it should come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall come, shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. This camp scenario somehow goes right into the kingdom of God. I don't know how it works. All the nations will gather together to hear what he has for the church. We have that kingdom opportunity today to gather in camp settings like this to hear what God has for us. We believe some other truths that God has, that God has placed a kingdom order in the church that will move right forward into the, into the kingdom of God. There's a truth that God has given us that we appreciate and we we'll sometimes take for granted, and that is that God has placed fathers in the church. Fathers in the church. 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you, to the gospel. God has placed spiritual fathers in the church. This is, we have elders in the church. The Bible talks about many different places about elders. We, we use the order of elders. It's not a popular order. It's, it's out there in other Christian circles, but it's not very popular with the world. 
We have plain Jane ordinary men that are set as elders, that are appointed and anointed by God. And that's the order that we use and that we follow. Elders, fathers in the church. Ephesians 2.19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. There is an apostolic foundation. We take that for granted sometimes. There's an apostolic foundation in the beginning. There's an apostolic foundation today. There'll be an apostolic foundation that goes right into the kingdom of God. You're all familiar with this, Ephesians 4.11. He himself gave son to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, a five-fold flavor, a five-fold ministry that's placed into the church, not in just the new church and that day, but in the church today and in the church that goes in to the kingdom of God. And he did it for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You know all these verses. You've heard all of these. This is one of the things we need to persevere in. Stick with it. Believe it. Hold on to it. Acts 2.42, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, it says this beautiful verse, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and the breaking of bread, communion, and in prayers. Right from the beginning, they walked in the apostles' doctrine, they walked in fellowship, they walked in the breaking of bread, communion, and in prayers. Another one I just scribbled down here. We know this, but we are saved by grace and grace alone. Ephesians 2, eight, for, your, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Another truth that we walk in is the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Persevering into that. Acts 2, verse 38 When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is this is in practice today. We persevere. You know, it might be easy to let some of the gifts of the Spirit just kind of fall to the wayside, But we need to persevere in the gifts of the Spirit and in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another truth that God has given us that we continue to walk in is the impartation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. That's that's a a blessing to the church. We persevere and move into it. I know there's different books out there. I read one years ago, How to Know Your Gifts. You, You buy a book and you read it and... I don't know how you know your gifts by reading the book, but I thank God we don't have, we don't have to give you a book. But by the laying on the hands, gifts of the Spirit can be imparted by the laying on the hands of the presbytery. First Timothy one eighteen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. First Timothy four fourteen. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. With a lane on the hands of the presbytery, the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. This is something we continue to persevere with. 
It, it takes work. It takes work to go to different places from time to time and pray over people. But we persevere. These are truths that God has laid out. We continue to walk in them. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has given the nine gifts of the Spirit. It outlines them in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. He's given those gifts of the Spirit to be given to the individual. This is another area that we persevere in. We long for and we try to cultivate the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. We want to see the gifts growing and being used. I mentioned this earlier, but elders and deacons given charge over the local flocks. You read about that in Acts 20, verse 28. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. God has given us shepherds, and we thank God for the shepherds that he's given us. Another truth that we persevere in, and we you may think we're harping on all the time, but it's tithing. If you can teach someone to tithe, you can bless them by teaching them how to tithe. The Bible's very clear about tithing, given a tenth. We've, we've heard, we've all heard hundreds, thousands of stories of people that didn't tithe, made money, but it's like putting money in a bucket with holes in it. For some reason, the refrigerator broke and the washing machine broke and the car broke down and they said, when I can afford it, I'm going to tithe and they could never afford it. And then you hear the story of the other person says, I don't make much money, but I can't afford not to tithe. And they pay their 10% to the Lord, and they don't get rich, but everything just seems to work out. And there's, there's a little more money at the end of the month than there used to be. If you tithe, it's a contract. God says, he says, test me and see if I will not open, open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that there, may, that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord. Persevere in tithing. I love it when you see little children on Sunday morning that do chores and make a dollar, and they take the little ten cents or tithe and give, put it in the basket on Sunday morning. That's such a joy to see that. Those are valuable, valuable lessons. I think I shared this story my children, sons and daughter-in-laws taught their kids to tithe. And my little grandson, when he's quite a bit younger, he's young now, but when he's quite a bit younger, he had a quarter that was his tithe that he was supposed to give on Sunday morning. His mom and dad told him, you that's you got to give that to the Lord. That's not yours. you got to give it to the Lord. And the basket came by, and I could see him clutching this quarter. And that basket's coming, and I can see him looking at it, looking at the basket, and he's got a battle going on in his mind. Do I really put that quarter in there? And the basket goes by him. I was sitting by him, and he put his hand over the basket, and it shook, and he couldn't turn loose. And I, for a minute, I thought, you know, maybe I'll reach over and just grab his fingers and pry it out. He's like four years old, you know. And then I thought, you know, they, the, 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 the optics, the visuals of Grandpa prying his fingers in church to get a quarter out of his hand would stick with him the rest of his life. So I didn't, and he held on to it. And then the service continued. When church was over, God got a hold of him, and he went up and put the quarter in. He got feeling guilty. And I was so glad that I didn't pry that out of his hands. But I thought, what a wonderful lesson he's learning that he wanted that. But he learned, it's not mine. 
And then he actually felt guilty that, uh-oh, I'm holding on to something that belongs to God. I better put it in that collection plate at four years old. Weekly communion. Weekly communion is something that we practice. There's many scriptures on that, that we persevere with. Okay, a couple other things I'm going to touch on. Definition of marriage. And we will persevere with the definition of marriage. Mark, the 10th chapter, verse 6 to 8. But from the beginning of creation, God made them two things, male and female. That's what he made. Not three, not four, not five, not ten, not twenty. National Geographic and an article about gender identity. And about I, I, I almost had to laugh as I read it. They listed 25 different descriptions of gender. Hey, folks, remember the male and female part? And here it is. For this reason, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. That was the definition of marriage in the very beginning. It was the definition of marriage when Jesus quoted this in Mark 10. And it's still the definition of marriage. And we will persevere with that definition of marriage. Anything outside of that is wrong. A sexual relationship out of what God created is just not right. It's just not right. Now, I want to throw this verse in here too. Like I said, every verse I'm quoting you could talk all night about. Those that have stepped outside the boundaries of what God has designed in marriage or in other areas, I have a really good verse for you. Those of you that have struggled with sins of the past, those that may have even struggled with abuse, those that have struggled with things you shouldn't have done, there's a verse I really love. You know, modern day psychology will say that if you had problems in your past, you did a bunch of horrible stuff, what you need to do is... Just put it on the table and keep thinking about it. Hash it out and talk about it, you know, and remember every detail. And you know what the Bible says? Paul had a checkered past. He sent people to their death, to their death. And this is what Paul said as he thought back about his life and what he, some of the bad stuff he did. This is what he said. Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not there. I'm not perfect. But there's one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. There it is, so simple. Leave the past in the past and press on into the future. If you've got a checkered past, you want to know what to do with it? Don't think about it. Don't relive it. Don't bring it up. Don't tell your friends all about it. Don't hash it out. Don't try to reimagine it. Reimagine it. Leave it in the past. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And then he said, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Leave it in the past. Quit looking in the rear view view mirror and look ahead. There's a lot of power in that one scripture. When it comes to counseling, this is one scripture. There's a lot of power in it. Leave the past in the past. Another Another truth that I appreciate, I only have a couple more here. There are many of them, but I'm just going to touch on a couple more, is is the odor of the home. And we're going to talk about it just briefly here. God created marriage, as I said, created husbands and wives, created the marriage relationship. It's not, it's not, it's not perfect because we're, we're imperfect human beings. 
A popular society woman announced a white elephant party. Every guest was to bring something that she could not find any use for, and yet too good to throw away. And 11 of the 19 women brought their husbands. <laughs> Marriage is it's imperfect. It's imperfect. The child was a typical four-year-old girl, cute, inquisitive, bright as a new penny. When she expressed difficulty in grasping the concept of marriage, her father decided to pull out his wedding photo album thinking visual images would help. One page after another, he pointed out the bride arriving at the church, the entrance, the wedding ceremony, the recessional, the reception. He says, now honey, now, now do you understand? She says, I think so. Is that when mommy came to work for us? You know, these are some of the things that you see in marriage. But nevertheless, God created marriage. The Apostle Paul, who was a single man, gave some of the best marriage advice in the Bible of all. And I'll just read it to you briefly. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission. God still asks for submission. That's not a popular word today. He still asks the wife to be in submission to her husband. That doesn't take anything away from the woman. It doesn't make a woman less than. It doesn't make her not equal. But someone has to take the lead. And God has demanded that the man take the lead. Now, you jump into an airplane... Up in that cockpit is two pilots. There's a captain and a co-pilot. They've received the same amount of training. They both have the, the same identical abilities to fly that airplane safely. But someone has to be the captain. Someone has to take the lead. Both are 100% capable of doing that job. Even so in a marriage, there are many things where we're 100% equal in doing the job, but still there has to, someone has to take the lead and has to provide a covering. Why submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? For the husband is head of the wife. Now, once again, when you say this, it's not a dictator. It's not a boss. The husband is the head of the wife. How? As Christ is head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And then he says, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You love your wife just as Jesus Christ gave his life and went to the cross and gave his all for the church. That's how much you're supposed to love your wife. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without, without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For you are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, there it is again, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's the order of the family, the order of the home. Let's persevere in that. We don't need to change it. We don't need to edit it, to modify it. We need to change it. You know, God still wants men to be men. He wants men to be leaders. I remember years ago, well, before we even had kids. No, we had kids. 
My brother worked out, uh, worked at this place along the uh, Illinois River, and the water was rising and beginning to flood the company, and he, they were bringing people in and paying them extra to sandbag. to get these bags and put sand in them and tie them up and build a wall of sandbags so the place wouldn't flood. He called me up and wanted to know, said, Andy, you want to make some extra money? You can go down and help me sandbag. That's before my back was much stronger at that time. So we get down there and we're sandbagging and it was, it was like a day like this. It was very much like today. It was this rainy, cold, nasty, windy weather. And all I can remember was it was dark out and it was real foggy. It was real foggy and the wind was blowing and the rain was cold and wet and we're bent over with shovels, shovels, putting them in bags and tying them up and putting them on this pallet, back-breaking, dirty, filthy, sweaty work to make some extra money for our family. Hard work. I remember my brother looked over at me. He says, you know, Andy, he says, isn't it something how you can put up with a lot of discomfort as long as you know your family is home and provided and taken care of? And that hit me. And I thought about my brother at that time. He's a leader. He's willing to break his back to provide for his family. He's a man. That's what God wants. He wants men to be leaders. Leaders, not bosses, but leaders. I, I have some pet peeves, and I, uh, I'll quote them to you quickly. Things that bug you. Not many things bug me. There's some things that bug me. One of them is when you go to Costco or Sam's Club. And they have the samples. And yes, Debbie and I still go there on our dates. We walk around, we get a cart. If you push a cart, it makes you look legitimate. You push a cart, and we get our little samples, and that's our lunch. One, But my pet peeve is when a customer stands there and gets their sample and then stands there and eats while you're standing behind them waiting to get your sample. And I remember... One time we were at Sam's Clubs, like Costco, and there's a lady, and she's cutting coconut cake. I mean, that's my favorite, coconut cake. And she's got the knife out, and she's talking to a lady, and she's taking forever to get that knife out. So we walked over and stood behind this lady, and they're chit-chatting. They went to church together. They're chit-chatting, and they talked and talked and talked, and I'm standing there thinking, should we go somewhere else, or should we stay in this line? Should we take a risk? And... So we stayed there, and it got longer and longer and longer, and I was beginning to lose my patience. And finally, she cut the cake, put it in the little plate, gave it to the lady, and then the lady committed the unpardonable sin. She stood there and ate it and kept visiting with the lady with all that delicious coconut cake sitting there. And I, I just about lost my Christianity right there. I wanted to say, lady, get out of the way. That's, that's one of my pet peeves. Another pet peeve is similar, and that is when someone stands in front of a coffee bar. In the morning, we go to frequently go to Burger King. We go there because we get a sausage sandwich for one dollar, and coffee is free for seniors. We're considered seniors, so we have breakfast for two dollars and sixteen cents with tax. And we stand there. We stand there. You go over there, and oh, you're ready for coffee. You got to get that coffee going. And they go up there, and when someone walks up and gets their coffee, and then they pour the cream in and their sugar in, and they stir it up. While you're standing behind them, oh, it just burns me up. It is, you want to say, get out of the way, you know. 
the Lord convicted me on that, actually. We, uh, we went to church, and we went to Burger King right after church. And I had my suit on, and I walked up. And there's a young man, I'm not, not exaggerating, standing in front of the coffee bar. He had long hair, real greasy hair. Had tattoos all over. Had earrings all over. I automatically had a, I had a bad impression of him. I, I'm sorry. And he's, he's committing the unpardonable sin. He's got his cup of coffee there and he's pouring cream in it real slow and sugar and stirring it up. And I, I'm standing there with my empty cup. And I'm just kind of starting to heat up, you know, and, and I want to say something like, you know, like, sir, young man, move. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I just got out of church and I'm wearing a suit and I'm standing there holding on to my Christianity. We're talking about perseverance, holding on to it. And he turns around and he looks at me, he saw me, he goes, oh, how was church today? And then I, I didn't have a word. You know, I, I said, well, it, it, it was great. And, you know, I, I felt, you know, I, I was ready to choke the guy. And here he is asking me about church. And I, I almost blew the opportunity to tell him about church. That's my second pet peeve. My third pet peeve is when men are lazy. It's a pet peeve of mine. I have a pet peeve. I, I, I'm, it bothers me when men don't want to be men. It bothers me when dads don't want to be dads. It bothers me when husbands don't want to be husbands. I, 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 I hate to see laziness in men. I hate to see that. I know it's bad for everybody. God wants men in the order of the home to be leaders, guiders, directors in that home, tender warriors in that home. Now, now I'm going to speak about singles a little bit, just a little bit here. I'm moving along quickly. I want to talk about singles. We talk about married couples all the time. We talk about the order of the church. We talk about the order of the home. And we say persevere in the order of the home. If you have marriage problems, the first, the best thing I can tell you to do is persevere. Hang in there. Work it out. Persevere. But I want to tell you something. Singles that are here. Not everybody gets married. You are just as valuable as any married person. You are just as much loved by God. You have a ministry just as powerful and wonderful and good and honored by God as a married person. You have a place. You have a place in the body of Christ. Let's talk about singles for just a minute here. We had a, an adult singles in beautiful Colorado in October last year. And it was wonderful. Had these single adults there. We had a, we had a great time. A wonderful time. By the way, you know what holiday single people celebrate every day? Independence Day. That's their favorite day, Independence Day. First, I have to say that the stages of being single, this is a, a young lady named May sent out a tweet. This is November 2015. You know, half of you don't know what a tweet is. It's a Twitter. You know, it's what President Trump uses to get around the press. You tweet. You tweet. And... Um, Single lady wrote this. She said, five, there's five stages of being single. There's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining. There's depression. And then there's texting your ex something random than going like, oh, sorry, wrong message. You've got to be single and tweeting to get that, as most of you are. Being single... You still have an important place in the body of Christ. Let me read you some important people in the Bible that were single. They had powerful ministries. Miriam, 
the sister of Moses, helped her prominent prophet brother with some of the aspects of leading the people of Israel. Elijah became the most influential prophet of Israel after Israelite monarchy was put into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Elisha was mentored by Elijah. He was single. He succeeded Elijah as a prophet to the kingdom of Israel. And like his predecessor, who was a man of the wild, Elisha freely associated with everyday people. His many miracles resemble the later miracles of Jesus. Elisha was probably the most Christ-like prophet of the Old Testament. Jeremiah was specifically ordered by God not to marry. He preached for about 50 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army. Daniel was one of a handful of people in Scripture of whom nothing negative is said. Like Joseph before him, Daniel became a master of dreams with prophetic overtones. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, commonly known as the three Hebrew boys, displayed brave and courageous devotion to God in the face of death by burning. The three youngsters were miraculously delivered by God from King Nebuchadnezzar's fire furnace. These people were all single. John the Baptist was cousin to Jesus and six months Jesus was senior. John was much like Elijah, removed from people and very pointed and confrontational to his preaching. The Apostle John may have been single because there's no mention of his wife. He authored five books and, uh, and letters of the New Testament, including the Gospel of John and the prophetic book of Revelation. His main things were truth, light, and love. He became known as the Apostle of Love. Mary Magdalene, this is interesting, she was a single woman who supported the ministry of Jesus all the way. She was the first individual Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. That's kind of profound. The first person that Jesus appeared to was not Peter, was not, was not any of the disciples. It was Mary Magdalene. She was the first individual that, that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. And she was the first to report the news of Christ's resurrection to the apostles. Some call her the first evangelist, the first one that preached the good news. Lazarus. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, were probably unmarried. The Apostle Paul was by far the most accomplished Christian of the New Testament, surpassing even the the original, the initial apostles who physically walked with Jesus Christ. He wrote half of the New Testament's 27 books and letters. Barnabas was a man credited with being the first to accept Paul, while the church was still skeptical of Paul, who used to harass and kill Christians before he was converted. Barnabas mentored Paul, mentored Paul, gave him credibility, and went with Paul on the first missionary trip. Timothy became Paul's most trusted spiritual son. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman who accommodated Paul and his missionary team in the city of Philippi. And I'll just close with one other very famous single person, Jesus Christ. I just throw these out here to let you know that if you're single... Sometimes it may sound like we overlook singles. You have a powerful ministry too. God has a place for everybody. Now I'm going to talk about children and teenagers just very briefly and I'm going to be done. Now you may think I'm all over the map, but I'm talking about persevering. If you want perseverance, raise a teenager. You need a lot of perseverance. The Bible is not silent on any of these issues. The order of the home is a precious thing to God. So let's talk about teenagers, some things to do with teenagers for just a minute here and raising them. First off, the question would be, why should you have a dog if you have a teenager? Why should you have a dog if you have a teenager? The answer is, is so that 
someone in the house is happy to see you. (laughs) Teenagers go to that stage, and God made them that way. Well, they begin to pull away and assert their independence, and it's okay. They're supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be that way. Where all of a sudden, you know, to a teenager, no matter what you say, if you say the sky is blue, they'll say, no, it's not really blue, it's green. You know, that God made them that way. One night, a girl brought her new boy from home to meet her parents, and they were appalled by his appearance. Leather jacket, motorcycle boots, tattoos, pierced nose. Later, the parents pulled their daughter aside, and they confessed their concern. Dear, said the mother diplomatically, "He, he just doesn't seem very nice. Oh, please, Mom, replied the daughter. If he wasn't nice, why would he be doing 500 hours of community service? Teenagers will often get things wrong. They simply don't interpret things properly. And that's why they need their parents, and you need a good relationship with them. A teenager is a hopeless romantic who never falls in love more than twice a week. The Bible says in Ephesians, just good, simple advice, 6th chapter of Ephesians, 6th verse, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. The children that are here in the congregation 12 years and under, the Bible is very clear and simple in commanding you what to do. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's all you got to do. Obey mom and dad. Uh, honor your father and mother, which is a commandment, is a first commandment with promise that it may be well with you, that you may live along in the earth. Next verse, I believe he doesn't, Paul doesn't say it, but I think he's talking to teenagers. And this is what he said. And you fathers, you know, once again, back to fathers. Many times discipline and raising children is kind of delegated to wives. It ought to be fathers too. It ought to be 50-50 or 100-100. And then he says, and you fathers. I like this. He's got to be talking to teenagers. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I like that verb. Don't provoke them. There's a way that you can raise your children, particularly teenagers, where you can provoke them. And you don't need to provoke them. A teenager is growing up. Their mind and brain is full of hormones and chemicals and rapid changes and their emotional and their voices go high and low and, and they grow pimples and they don't think clear. They're erratic. And they're, they're easy to provoke. And there's a place where you have to be careful about how you lay the law down. You still lay it down, but don't purposely provoke. Don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We need to help our teenagers avoid the minefield of long-term consequences. We have to help our teenagers get through that minefield. It's a short period of time, four, five, six years, and they grow up. They grow out of it. You've heard it said that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when he was 12 because if he was 13, it wouldn't have been a sacrifice. (laughs) Don't provoke them to wrath. Get them through it. So I want to give you some quick tips here, and then I'm going to close with this on raising teenagers. We love our teenagers. I'm, I'm making jokes about teenagers. Teenagers, we absolutely love you with all of our heart. And your mom and dad does, and grandma and grandpa does, and aunts and uncles. We want the absolute best for you. Here's some tips for mom and dads. Number one, start by making the Lord a daily part of your life from the birth of your child. Be a role model. 
pray at meals, devotions, weave the wonderful truths of the grace and love of God throughout their daily life. You don't start it when you're a teenager. Raise them up. Just the fabric of your life is God. Everything that you do. I've talked about my grandson and tithing. Just from the time to little, weave it into their life. Weave it into them. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 6.6, These words as I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. These words, keep them on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. That's how you start. Teach them day in and day out from the time they're very, very little. Teach them Bible stories. Raise them. Next thing you do is, as you're doing here, bring them to church every Sunday. Bring them to at least one camp a year. And as they become teenagers, bring them to a young people's. Get them around other teenagers, other Christian people. You have to do that. Here's some other tips here. Give your teenagers some leeway. Give teens a chance to establish some of their own identity. Giving them a little more independence. Persevering. It's essential to help them establish their own place in the world. You know, if they're hanging out with the wrong crowd, you've got to put your foot down. But there's some areas where you just have to start giving them some leeway. It can't be your way all the time. You have to give them a little bit of leeway. Along with that, and I think this is really good advice, is you choose your battles wisely as parents with teenagers. You can't win all the battles. Don't try to win all the battles. Choose them wisely. Doing themselves harm or doing something that could be permanent, these things matter. There are other things that don't matter. A messy room, how they wear their hair, who knows what it is. There are other things that aren't as important. Pick your battles. Some battles are worth winning. Some battles aren't worth winning. Some battles it just provokes. All battles are not worth winning. Some are absolutely necessary to win. Riding a motorcycle without a helmet. Texting while driving. Many others are worth winning. Some aren't. Invite your teenager's friends. Invite them over to your house for dinner. You want to know what their friends are like? Invite them to your house. Don't complain about how bad their friends are. Invite them over. Invite them to your house. It helps to meet kids you have questions about. You're not flat out rejecting them. You're at least making an overture. When kids see them, they see how their friends act with their parents. They get a better sense of those friends. Invite their friends to your home. Invite them to your home. Decide rules and discipline in advance. It's important for parents to have their own discussion so you can have some kind of an agreement so parents are both on the same page. Mom and dad, very important with discipline, particularly teenagers, be on the same page. You know, a teenager or a child should not be able to go to dad versus mom because they want a different answer. You need to be on the same page. Agree to what the rules are, what discipline is. Whether you ban them from driving for a week or a month, or you ground them for a week, or you cut back on their allowance, cut out their Internet usage, you agree to that ahead of time. If the kid says it's not fair, then you you have to agree on what is fair and follow through with the consequences. This is another good one here. Talk about checking in with your teenagers. Give teens age-appropriate autonomy, especially if they behave appropriately, but but you need to know where they are. You need to know where they are. That's part of being a responsible parent. You know, if you need to require, require your teenagers to check in, there's different ways you can check in nowadays. The old way is you picked up a phone and you called. You called mom and dad. 
The new way is you track them on a tracking app on their phone. There's just different ways to do it. And if your teenager doesn't like a tracking app on their phone and you're paying the phone bill, it's either a phone with a tracking app or no phone. There's different things you can do. You need to know where they are. And it's not because you don't trust them. It's because they can't trust themselves. Teenagers aren't at the point, and this has been proven with MRIs and everything else, they're not at the point that they can use wisdom yet. And that part of the brain doesn't develop to about 22 to 24. They are dealing with emotion, and the section that deals with wisdom isn't working yet. You need to know where they are. Find a way to have them check in. Talk to your teenagers about risks, dangers. Help them set boundaries, whether it's drugs or driving or premarital sex or whatever. Talk to them about it. Set boundaries. Make them aware of the risks. Give them another, give them a, a game plan. Give them a way out of bad situations. Let them know that they can always call you to come and pick them up if, if necessary. I remember there was a Christian family in Indiana when we lived in Indiana that had great family. And one of the daughters was a teenager. And she told us how much she appreciated being able to blame her parents. And what she meant was, she said, she would have some friends from school that wanted her to go somewhere that she shouldn't go. Some place that she really shouldn't be going. Hey, come to this party with us or whatever it is. And she didn't quite have the strength, the gumption, the faith to say, Oh no, I got a moral boundary. I won't go there with you, my friends. She couldn't do that. But she could say, oh, I'm sorry, my parents won't let me go. And she said, she was telling us how much she appreciated being able to blame things on her parents. Teenagers, blame things on your parents. If if your friends want you to do something you know you shouldn't be doing, go to a place you know you shouldn't be going, blame your parents. Ah, I'd really like to go, but my mom and dad, they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't let me go. Blame them if you want to. Give them a way out. Give them a game plan. Keep the door of communication open. Don't interrogate. Be interested in their everyday life. Uh, this is another good one. I only got a couple more here. Uh, this is a good one here. Uh, this goes against the popular thinking of, of the day, but let kids feel guilty. There's too much made about self-esteem. Feeling good about yourself is healthy, but people should feel bad if they hurt someone or they did something wrong. Kids need to feel bad sometimes. Guilt with conviction and repentance is a healthy healthy emotion. You know, we all want self-esteem. But it's also okay to feel bad about something bad that you did. It's a good emotion. Be a role model. Your actions, even more than your words, are critical in helping teens adopt good moral and ethical standards. Last one here, and then I'm going to read one verse and we'll close. There are many other things we could mention. Set a time limit for your teenagers. Put a time limit here in North America on their Internet access. Set a time limit. You shouldn't have a computer in a teenager's room available 24 hours a day. The Internet should not be available to them 24 hours a day. You teenagers are going to shoot me afterwards. But you're only asking for trouble. You're only asking for trouble. There are things that are looking for them and it's in that room, and they have access to it, it's going to get a hold of them. Limit that Internet access. There's different things you can do. You can use a router uh, program to turn off at a certain time. 
Be nosy. Yes, be nosy about your, what your teenagers are, what their social habits are, their social network habits, who they're talking to, what they're doing. Yes, I know you're going to get mad at me, but be nosy about that. As a parent, it's your job to know what your teenagers are doing. And we do this because we love them and we want to protect them. Persevere. Persevere. Stick with it. Stick with it. I'm going to read you the last verse and, and uh, we're going to be taking announcements right after that. I'm going to close. Persevere. I covered a lot of territory tonight, but the message is stick with it. Stick with it. I mentioned, I rattled off a lot of stuff here. The important thing is that God doesn't want us to hear things. He wants us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Persevere. Put it into action. The prodigal son, the faithful son, once again, the faithful son didn't have a lot of emotion, but he stuck with it. He was faithful to his dad. He was faithful. And his father told him all that I have is yours. Be faithful. First Corinthians nine twenty four to 27, last verse. He says this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run myself, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as a shadow boxer, as one that beats the air, but I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest after I preach to others, I should become disqualified. That is a verse of perseverance, practicing what you preach, putting things into action. Heavenly Father, tonight, I'm speaking of myself and all of us in the congregation. I pray that you help us to have a a resolve to walk faithfully day in and day out to the things that you have called us to. I pray that you help us to be faithful day in and day out, to the truths that you have placed in front of us, that you have revealed to the church. Help us to be faithful in these things, my Father. Bless this congregation in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org.